Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 901. At the top of this week's show, Ben Clemens and Meg Rowley discuss their research in visualizing the minor league landscape for 2021. A lot of fans are going to have their access to baseball change, and while it took a lot of number crunching, Ben and Meg did their best to make sense of the situation. So 5.2 million people are going to lose all baseball access as we've defined it. So that doesn't include college programs and existing Woodbat summer leagues, but everything that's included in this major league proposal, plus all of the existing indie leagues, they'll be out of driving range of those. After that, Eric Longenhagen picks Jay Jaffe's brain about the concept of an alternate reality in which Jay gets the pick who has made the Hall of Fame. How would history have gone differently? Who would we be picking for the class this year? And how exactly would Jay use his Hall of Fame omnipotence? But what that caused those guys lingering was that Vlad Guerrero did not make it into the Hall on the first ballot. He got 71.7%, which is, you know, close but no cigar. You know, in this context, he's a little sh- he's a little short on jaws. His defensive metrics aren't great, but man, that's, you got to watch. You know, watching Vlad Guerrero play ball, you're like, of course, this guy's a Hall of Famer. You know, <laughs> tell your statistics to shut up, Jaffe. <laughs> <laughs> Fangraphs Audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. It is thanks to you that we get to do things like analyze minor league baseball maps and play what if with Hall of Fame ballots. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by Meg Rowley. Hi. Hey, Meg. And we are here to talk about minor league re-affiliation, de-affiliation? Contraction, reimagining, repositioning, reconnoitering? I don't know. <laughs> one of those. Your choice. One baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so ominous. Yeah, Ben, we, well, I say we. I think we'll pull the curtain back a little bit to say that When it comes to the actual coding work that went on to make this project possible both the first time and the most recent time, a lot of the credit should should go to you. So I will say we, but our listeners can know that it was mostly you on this part. We we redid our analysis of uh, the impact of MLB's new plan for the minor leagues in 2021, and uh, we thought we'd talk about it. Yeah. I may have done a lot of the kind of data inputting, but Meg did a lot of the figuring out which teams were which and <laughs> being the boots on the ground that made the article actually make sense. So I would say it was a team effort. I was the one who said, oh, no, we have to include Fresno after all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of on Fresno, not on us. Yeah. Although we're we're happy for Fresno that they get to continue to play affiliated ball, assuming they accept their invitation. Uh- are are we happy for them? It doesn't really seem know. like they got the best deal. No, they had to they had to switch levels and move down the minor league ladder. So, I guess time will sort of tell what the difference is between that and becoming like an amateur summer woodbat league. But yeah, I guess Ben, we should we should say for our listeners who haven't read the piece and maybe haven't been paying attention to the whole minor league thing, we would need an hour's worth of podcast at to lay all of it out, but maybe we should take a moment to sort of recap where we are and how we got here so that folks can get a sense of what this is going to mean going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good idea. The first time that we started working on an analysis for this was actually back in 2019 because Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball 
were in the sort of beginning stages of their new negotiation for their professional baseball agreement, which is the agreement that governs the relationship between the majors and the minors and, you know, determines affiliates and um, and all sorts of fun stuff um, that, that make up the business arrangement between Major League Baseball and uh, the affiliated minors. And in the course of MLB's initial proposal as part of that negotiation, the league made clear that they wanted to dramatically reimagine the minors. So they wanted to reduce the number of affiliated teams. They wanted to change the format of some of those teams that had lost their affiliated status to make them sort of pro partner leagues or summer woodbat leagues. And it was going to take the, the number of affiliated teams from 160 down to 120. And we were curious at the time of the initial proposal and sort of the the leaked lists of teams that might find themselves on the chopping block, what this would mean for in-person access to baseball in the United States. Because a lot of people don't live in major metropolitan areas and every major metropolitan area doesn't necessarily have a major league team. And so a lot of people get their access to live baseball through minor league games, which tend to be far less expensive than their major league counterparts. And have sort of their own vibe and atmosphere and I think are important to a lot of people and a lot of communities. And while they're, you know, the minor leagues are not perfect by any means, we we anticipated that there would be sort of a real and tangible loss if we understand it as communities either not having access to in-person baseball anymore or seeing their access shift either to different formats or to major league baseball as sort of their primary method, which is, as I've noted, like more expensive on average for, you know, a family of four to go out to the to the ballpark for the evening. So we yeah. did that analysis in twenty nineteen and then last week we got the we got the real list. The real list. <laughs> yeah. So in twenty nineteen they had floated a preliminary list, but it it was not yet clear what was going to happen to the teams who were leaving. Right. So when we initially looked at it we thought they might just not vanish per se. They've got the stadiums and the the logos, but we didn't really have any clue what would happen next. And when they announced this round, they actually had more of a plan for that. Yeah. So over the course of the the year, we have seen a couple of franchises and a couple of leagues sort of proactively announce that they are going to be new pro partner leagues. So these are leagues that are going to be really similar to indie ball in that they will be home to a lot of minor leaguers who get cut from the teams that would otherwise have fielded, you know, affiliated baseball teams in 2021 or from undrafted players who are trying to catch on and sort of catch the eye of a scout and then and then get a shot in affiliated ball. And then a large percentage of them will also become summer amateur woodbat leagues. So if folks are familiar with the Cape Cod League, this is a version of that. And one of those leagues will be officially designated as the MLB Draft League. High schoolers will be eligible, but will be sort of primarily targeted at rising juniors and seniors in college who are going to be draft eligible and want to get the attention of scouts. And then the other summer woodbat league, which will sort of live in Appalachia, will be home mostly to high school athletes, some of whom will have Team USA affiliation, some of whom won't. So those are the non-affiliated but affiliated <laughs> yeah. alternatives. And then there are 19 or 18 teams that don't know what they're doing in 2021 yet. Yeah. It's safe to say that there was some regional considerations. Sure. There were some regional considerations in the way that they cut these up. 
there kind of had to be. They they couldn't just you know cut a bunch of team or cut most of the teams in one area and leave one isolated one. But the areas that were hit the most were like the Appalachian League that's becoming the. Is it going to be called the Appy League? I don't know what they're going to call it. I find it as an aside. Don't you find it kind of strange? Like one of them gets this very official sounding designation, the MLB Draft League, and then there's the Appy League. <laughs> yeah. No, I really do. I assume they'll just remain the Appy League, but with a new right. format, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's very odd to me. Yeah. Like, I want there to be a name. Yeah, it's the whole thing is is very, very strange. Yeah. And then I guess the Pioneer League will probably be called the Pioneer League still. I guess, yeah. That one is, I mean, less, I don't know if it matters as much what it's going to be called because it's going to be more of a, like a, a much higher talent level league. It'll be clearly differentiated from like whatever the Appy League ends up being. The players there will be, I think, better on average. Right. Like this was a this was a question that we were curious about and I don't think anyone has a really satisfying answer about it yet. But, you know, one of the things that we wanted to to think about when we were analyzing which communities were gonna see like the character of their access shift, right? So going yeah. from affiliated ball to a summer woodbat league, what does that mean in terms of the actual fan experience of watching those games? And Ben Lindbergh and I were lucky enough to have JJ Cooper from Baseball America on the podcast and he made the point and you know we we made this point in our piece that, you know, for the average baseball fan, the difference in between say a a New York Penn League game as it's currently constituted and a lot of the teams that will make up the MLB draft league will come from the New York Penn League but for the average fan watching that like they're not watching a you know a bonanza of first rounders as it is right now even though they're watching um sort of short season affiliated ball so I actually frequented the New York Penn League reasonably often when I lived in yeah. New York and I can't at this point, tell you any of the prospects I saw. I, I even went to the Rays affiliate the uh, most often. And yeah, the point of it is not that you remember the prospects really well. Right. I think that for a lot of folks, you know, they want to be able to enjoy a night at the ballpark, the quality of the baseball that they're watching, at least when they're watching sort of short season affiliated ball is a little less important. I do think that there are going to be people for whom the shift from watching guys who they could envision, even if the chances are very scant, ending up on a big league roster someday versus them now watching guys who haven't even been drafted yet, like that's going to be a bridge too far for some percentage of fans, but it's just really hard for us to know at this stage of the game how meaningfully that shift is really going to impact access, right? Like is this shift in quality, if there is one, sufficient to really dampen enthusiasm for it? And I don't think we know the answer yeah. to that yet. It's also a bit of a an issue with moving targets where we don't actually know what the average quality of an indie league player is going to be when the number of affiliated teams right. changes right the indie leagues might all get a lot better right because they're now going to be you know there are going to be 40 plus rosters worth of guys that need to find a new place to play and the you know teams are being told and i don't know that the exact number has been settled on but they're gonna have a a cap somewhere around 180 of guys they can roster across the affiliated minors. So they're Does that count the DSL and such. I think it excludes. Well, here, this is the sort of thing that is good to get right. So I'm going to go to our pals over at Baseball America and look at the place where I know this to be to be discussed. 
And I think we should take a moment here to say that like the work that BA did on this from start to finish was like just really incredible and we couldn't have pulled our work together without there. So I think Yeah, absolutely. Wanna make sure to acknowledge that. We're pretty good at taking existing numbers and squeezing them into pictures. Yes. <laughs> Figuring out those existing numbers was uh not particularly easy and they did a really good job of it. Yeah, they did a fantastic job. So we want to thank them for all of their like really, really hard work during this. So they're expected to restrict each franchise, so each major league team, to mm-hmm. 180 players on domestic U.S. minor league rosters. And then they will have a two-team DSL limit. Okay. So... You know, they had originally proposed a 150-player cap, and that I think would be tight. Yeah, I think that that a lot of teams kind of noted that this would be disastrous, and that it really limits your ability to give roster space and development time to guys who might not fit neatly into a prospect profile that we know to be good, but might still be interesting. You know. These limits are going to apply to every major league franchise, and these cuts are applying to every major league franchise. So, you know, the Dodgers and the Yankees, which used to field nine affiliated teams, are going to be restricted to four just like everyone else. So I wouldn't be surprised if this, you know, them bumping up the limit was sort of a concession to that where New York and L.A. were like, come on, guys, you got to give us something here. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that is interesting, though, is you might start seeing more of a system where the indie league success stories become less of a of an outlier right like if that's really the way that like if the let's call it 190th player on a roster is uh very frequently making the majors or even very infrequently making the majors with this new system that guy is not right like right. <laughs> that major league spot is now open and some right. of those will go to guys in the affiliated minors but if they're just not good enough then it's going to come from the Indy Leagues. Right. And there's more of those spots now because there are fewer very distant prospects who are going to make the majors just like by pure math of it. Right. So there has been this shift and there are going to be places that have new kinds of baseball. There are going to be places that lose baseball. But let's take a moment to just sort of recap some of the results that we found because I think in case anyone was intimidated by our very long methodological explanation. (laughs) Yeah, my bad. (laughs) <laughs> but very necessary, right? This was a complicated way to do this. We had to, you know, it takes it takes a good amount of work to figure out how many people live proximate to a minor league stadium or an indie league stadium or a major league stadium. You have to do some some wrangling and there are some limitations to our wrangling. So we thought it was important to let folks know that. But I guess like the, the number that people might be most interested in is, Ben, how many people under this scheme do we see as losing their access to sort of close to home baseball entirely? And then we'll kind of add some caveats to that because I think those are important. So 5.2 million people are going to lose all baseball access as we've defined it. So that doesn't include college programs and existing wood bat summer leagues, but everything that's included in this major league proposal, plus all of the existing indie leagues, they'll be out of driving range of those. And those are sort of concentrated in a couple of of bands, right? So like there there's a spot in Oregon that is losing close access. There are parts of the sort of Rocky Mountain West uh, that look like they're about to. And then you have this band. Yeah, the, the part hit hardest is 
kind of the coal belt. Right. So we get a big blotch in Tennessee. We get, you know, this long stretch from Kentucky up into West Virginia. There are some places in the Northeast. So these are communities, like you said, that might have access to college baseball or to existing summer wood bat leagues. But we excluded those from our analysis. The college stuff is just really complicated. There are so many college programs across the country. And so just from a data perspective, it was a little bit too much for us to to bite off, but I am comfortable with its exclusion if for no other reason than outside of the marquee programs. It doesn't appear that college baseball is always being taken advantage of to the extent it should be. Yeah. I think the big issue with that is that it's easy to say, is there a college with a baseball program there? Yes, no. Right. But the the college baseball programs where it's worth going to games are not necessarily infinite. Right. And they tend to be in places that already have baseball. Right. Now, occasionally you'll get things wrong. Like we have Louisville, Kentucky on here. Right. And Louisville's decent. Yeah. They're they're worth watching, I believe. Yes. But for example, that blotch in Western Tennessee, it's out of the coal belt, but it's in, well, it's not Appalachia either, but it's in the South. That's too far from Vandy. Right. Memphis, I don't think is a real baseball team. And there's also already a minor league team in Memphis, so it, you know, they're not really affecting much there. And there aren't really any Western Tennessee schools that aren't right. Memphis. So those ones are just gone. Right. That weird blotch in northeastern Missouri and southeastern Iowa, that's out of range of Mizzou. Right. You know, college baseball is somewhat a substitute, but it's not a perfect substitute. And it's certainly not a substitute for all of these places. Right. And I think the other really interesting sort of demographic to think about are the folks who are moving from minor league access to major league access, which looks like a small, it's a complicated picture, right? Because the highlights on our map for that, they signify over 17 million people. And you might think to yourself, wow, that's a big number. And for each of those 17 million people, it might be a very big number, right? That is a meaningful change in their lives. But there are also a fair number of people across the country who are gaining access to minor league baseball as a result of some of the affiliates of teams switching around. So like if you live in Minneapolis, for instance, and you feel priced out of the Twins, good news, <laughs> you yeah. have the St. Saint Paul Saints now. But in total, there are almost 7 million people who are going to go from having affordable minor league baseball near at hand to if they want to see life baseball having to go to games where on average that ticket price is going to be higher you know when we did this analysis in 2019 we noted some figures from earlier in the decade where in 2016 the average minor league ticket cost eight bucks and you'd be hard pressed to find that at any major league ballpark, no matter how good the team is, right? Yeah. And these also vary heavily. So the Chicago area is losing mm, the Geneva something or others. Right. Kane County Cougars. There we go. Yes. And yeah, it's not cheap to go watch the Cubs. It's no. marginally cheap to watch the White Sox, but not that cheap. And probably not for much longer, right? <laughs> right. That's the curse of a good baseball team. So yeah. And in similar fashion, the Dodgers are losing, like, people who live near LA are losing easy access to minor league baseball, and Angels and Dodgers games are not cheap. Right. On the other hand, Colorado is losing some access and being forced to go to the Rockies, and the last time that I went to a Rockies game, a staffer handed me a ticket, and I was not a baseball writer, I was just a person on the street. <laughs> 
Well, I think there can be a real range for Coors, but they make a they make a point of making it affordable, perhaps in a bit of self-awareness about the quality of the product on the field at times. <laughs> yeah, I would say that for some of these people, this is going to be a you're not going to 10 baseball games a year anymore thing. Right. If you live in Chicago, it's very expensive to go to 10 Cubs games. I yeah. hope you have a high paying job if you're doing yeah. that. If you live in LA, same deal. If you live near Cincinnati or near Colorado, it's more reasonable. And that's a difficult thing to contextualize on this map. Right. But it's worth noting that, you know, these spots show where there will be changes, but not the difficulty of those changes in each case. Right. And so I think that this is, you know, in much the same way that we viewed the 2019 analysis as sort of a starting point that we hope other folks who are interested might do more with. We hope the same is true for the 2020 analysis, because I think there there is variability and texture to the nature of access and how these changes are going to sort of realistically impact communities and people's enjoyment of baseball. And so we've made all our fancy code and stuff available at the end of, of the piece, because if you are listening to this and saying, well, you guys didn't think of this question, we hope that you'll take the opportunity to to tell us and then to do some work around it, because I don't think this is the the end of the road for this approach. But I struggled with the tone of this piece a little bit. We talked about this as we were writing it because there is a lot about this process that feels sort of unsettled, right? We don't know, again, like we don't know what it's going to mean to people to lose affiliated ball but gain something else. You know, it's not as if Abbey League teams were so well supported to begin with, right? Like that league probably doesn't exist without MLB support as it was. So it is a, a complicated picture, but I do think that, you know, one thing that we will probably spend a lot of time analyzing in the coming months and years at Fangraphs is what this consolidation of of power in baseball really means for the sport, because there are a lot of good reasons to sort of optimize the way that the minors are constituted, and there are good things in this proposal, right? Yeah, if you're one of those 150 or 180 players, this is good for you. Right. You're going to get paid more, right? Probably still not enough, but more. You're going to get paid more. For a lot of folks, the travel will be more reasonable, although there are some exceptions to that. You're going to have more major league-ish lights, for right. sure, there in are every gonna stadium, be a, basically. Right. There are going to be a bunch of facility upgrades. And, you know, for, for a lot of clubs, they took this as an opportunity to bring their AAA affiliates closer to their major league teams if they weren't close already. So that's a good approach. <laughs> like, it's nice for the Mariners that the Rainiers are down I-5 from them, right? Yeah, there's, you can look at some smaller effects of this. The Mets, I think in 2019, went from Vegas to Syracuse. And it it was a huge upgrade to the quality of life for their minor leaguers. Now they're doing that in a bunch of places all at once. That's just a clear upgrade. Right. And so there are aspects of this that are good. And, you know, I think that opinions vary within player development organizations about how many teams you really need. Like I've, I have heard different numbers from different folks I've talked to at teams, but I do think that we have seen what Major League Baseball kind of is like when it feels like it has the upper hand from a negotiating perspective and they have the ultimate upper hand with the minor leagues now. So I think that we're going to have to pay really close attention to that and sort of see what the the downstream effects of that are. And at the end of the day, if you're a fan that just lost your your local team, you probably don't care about any of that stuff. Oh, yeah. I think that focusing on the long-term health of baseball is a reasonable thing to do. It 
it matters. And it's kind of irrelevant to this reporting. This is entirely about how many people are just going to suddenly not have minor league baseball. And the long-term health of baseball is just not the same thing as that. Right. And so I think that, you know, it's a it's a conversation that people get sort of, I think, rightfully pretty worked up about. And there are a lot of things that this analysis doesn't do and doesn't try to do. But I think one thing that it did and that we've succeeded at is really laying out what the stakes are for uh, communities all across the country. And that's not the only thing that's going to matter clearly. And it doesn't necessarily need to drive the direction of minor league baseball in its totality, but it's a shame that it wasn't a bigger consideration here. You know, I think that the replacement options are better than nothing, but I hope that the the 18 teams that don't know what they're up to yet can find a way to keep keep going, but it's going to be tricky. This all assumes, of course, that anyone is able to go see minor league baseball in 2021 at all. Right. That <laughs> might be the most optimistic part of our iffy. analysis. <laughs> yeah. And as a, a quick side note for anyone who's both read the entire article and listened all the way through this, and thanks. But also, if you're interested in kind of crunching through this data and the links that we've provided still aren't quite enough, like please feel free to contact us. Oh, yeah. We would love to see more research done on the data sets we've compiled. We'd love to see other ways of looking at this data. We are limited by our imagination in manipulating it, but that doesn't mean that we don't want more people to do it. Yeah, you should absolutely give us a shout if you have an interesting question and think that our our data set would help you to answer it because if for no other reason than it helps to further justify the time we spent on it, we're happy to help you out. <laughs> Oh yeah, there was there was a fair share of uh, this forty five minute batch just finished running, and oh, I like I goofed out, I goofed up the two Burlingtons, and so now it's time yeah. to start running it again. Yeah, why do we? You know, it it really raises the question of why we allow multiple places to have the same name. You like, know what's the weirdest thing about this? Neither of these two Burlingtons is the most prominent Burlington right. with a minor league baseball team. Right. It's so bizarre. Yeah, it's a it's a very goofy thing. I learned the other day that the generation that's coming after Generation Z is Generation Alpha, and we just we just ran out of stuff, and now I we're starting it's, over. It's hurricane-ish. Yeah, it sounds very dystopian, which perhaps makes it appropriate. Well, Ben, before we we close out, is there anything else that that you want to highlight from this work that we did? I think the most pertinent thing to highlight is just that baseball access isn't as simple as thinking about how many teams there are counting up the teams it matters where they put them it matters what's already there and regions that are already short of other stuff are going to be hit the hardest by this and i think it's important to think about that when you think about the impacts of this it's not just a raw people count it's that the people who are affected are perhaps in in bad situations to be able to find a replacement and i think that's very sad uh, as someone who grew up I mean, in Appalachia, but not in a particularly poor part of Appalachia. I That was a really nice thing that there was cheap professional entertainment all around. And it was really fun. I spent a ton of my childhood doing that. And I think it's important to kind of point out that there are some real regional costs to changing this. It's not just about baseball. I think that's very well said. I don't have anything to add that would be more insightful than that. So I guess we can leave it there. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. 
And I'm Ben Clemens, also of Fangraphs. And thanks for listening. Good evening, everybody. This is Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst. On uh, Thursday evening, I'm joined by Jay Jaffe. Jay, how's it going? Hey, I'm good. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I was had on the um, the Raiders game right as Marcus Mariota was coming in. So excited to see how that turns out when uh, when we get through here. And as we were talking before we came on the pod, I had a, a thought that I wanted to share with you and our listeners, which is, is there going to be like an estate sale type of market for <laughs> good email, like screen names, handles for stuff? Like if you're, producer Dylan has an email that I'm surprised he has. His email address was surprising. Like he got in very early, it seems, on email. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you're like Jeff at, Hotmail, and you're on your deathbed. Does like your estate get to auction off your right. <laughs> screen name? Because I think there would be demand for that to be like Eric at Gmail. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder, I'm just looking to see if there, there if there's a just a J J Y on Twitter, you know, for for that handle. Or and it looks like there is somebody who's got maybe almost like 2,700 followers. You know, it, it lives in London. Uh, that's my that my following is much bigger. So, but imagine if I was just Jay. Hmm, I'll try that on yeah. size. <laughs> we should invest in in stuff like that. Whatever it is, right now, just go do it thoughtlessly. But anyway, what we really came to do this evening is talk about an alternate universe of sorts. We're going to talk about what the Hall of Fame ballot and perhaps the the Hall of Fame discourse might look like if everybody who the general consensus of internet peoples. But most specifically, Jay Jaffe hmm. thought deserved to be inducted into the Hall of Fame throughout, you know, this timeline that we're about to create. And then the first question that we had, Jay, was when should we, how far should we go back to keep, you know, the length of the podcast something reasonable, yeah. but also see what kind of impact might be had? And you had an immediate thought, which was what? Yeah, I, I think you have to go back to the 2013 ballot, the year that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling, Mike Piazza, Kenny Lofton and Sammy Sosa uh, all hit the ballot. And it was uh, and Craig Bishop, Jesus, it was just a monster, monster first year class on there. And, you know, the, the got bogged down by the PED discussion, Bonds and Clemens, who have obviously Hall of Fame numbers, but just as obviously a lot of people don't want them in the Hall of Fame because of their connections to PED use. Likewise, for, for Sammy Sosa, there were allegations connected to Mike Piazza. Schilling really wasn't seen at that point as 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 a particularly strong Hall of Fame candidate. Kenny Lofton got no love on that ballot and, and just got 3.2% and fell off. You know, Mark McGuire kind of petered out. This was at a, also at a point when, when these candidates were believed to have 15 years on the ballot rather than 10. You know, the Hall of Fame has, has, has moved the goalpost in the midst of these candidacies. And I think if you go back here, see what happened was is that nobody got in. Biggio got 68.2% and it created this bottleneck that had a, a multi-year effect that I think we're only really now kind of coming through. Um, you know, the current ballot, you know, it's it's entirely possible we won't get anybody elected this year. But, you know, if you go back to 2013, I think it all starts there. And so that's a good place to begin an alternate history. So like the spreadsheet that we're both looking at now and what the, some of the key metrics that I think we're going to be following here are what percent of the vote did some of the, the players get? And in this case, yeah, with nobody getting in, 
how does that then affect who are some of the down ballot guys who could have gotten maybe multiple years on the ballot if there wasn't quite this this bottleneck? I think like Lofton just shocks me that he's a one year and off guy. Yeah. And so for him to have stayed on what like a sufficient number of it just seems like at some point this was a a problem of the electorate less than the, this bottlenecking specific to Lofton in this case, right? Or am I seeing it? Yeah, I, I think well, I think I think Lofton was kind of just a just a victim here of of being lost in a first year class because there's there you've got okay if I'm if I'm filling out this ballot and I'm going like the ten most deserving based on Jaws for example here so if I'm looking if I'm filling out a 2013 ballot here and I'm thinking you know primarily in terms of my Jaws system and looking at the guys who are the furthest over as being the most deserving candidates and. I wouldn't say I'm PED agnostic, but I do differentiate between what happened during the pre-testing era, which is to say prior to 2004, and what happened in the testing era. So, you know, if something that, uh, if a guy failed the survey test, or if he's involved in Balco or the Mitchell report, to me, I, you know, that's not disqualifying. Uh, whereas if a guy fails a test, you know, that that that's a different classification here. So if I'm going by by that and I'm and I'm filling out my ballot. I have Bonds and Clemens, Jeff Bagwell, oh and Mike Piazza. Let's see, and then Alan Trammell, who's getting up there in years. Tim Raines, six. At this point, yeah, I would have I would probably have Kurt Schilling there because at this point what Kurt Schilling has done, has done as far as 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 far as opening his yeah would have been fairly innocuous relative to, to all the all the stuff we know about him now. Got Larry Walker here. So that's three, six, seven, eight. And then you've got Craig Biggio with his 3,000 hits. And then it comes down to, you know, Kenny Lofton and Mark McGuire here. You know, I was pro Lofton. He fell off the ballot with just 3.2% of the vote here. I think if you backtrack a bit and you worry a bit about, you know, what the percentages of these guys are getting and, you, and, and you're doing triage, you say, wait a second, I'm worried about Kenny Lofton. So you include Kenny Lofton and then you look at a guy who's still got time left and let's just say I don't know. Let's just throw a dart here and say Larry Walker doesn't get it. Doesn't get the vote this year because he's only in his third year, and likewise Edgar Martinez in his fourth in his fourth year. So you're not going to worry about them. I think you get to encourage and dictate strategic voting in a scenario where you're, you know, yeah. playing the Hall of Fame gods. I I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So if I'm keeping Kenny Lofton on here. I still have Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire here and Rafael Palmero, but I'm ruling out Palmero based on my based on my line. I'm keeping uh, Larry Walker and Edgar in, in, in cold storage here, and I've got one, two, three, four. Five. Let's say just say we skip over 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 Sammy and, and and four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and let's say let's say I choose McGuire here, three, four, five. That's ten. So Bonds, Clemens, Bagwell, Schilling, Trammell, Reigns, Lofton. Biggio, McGuire, and Piazza. That would be one mother of a class. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, as it is, you know, we've we've got Bagwell and Walker and Trammell and, and Edgar and Reigns in the hall, Piazza too. Yeah, and I think some of the down-ballot candidates who fell off were interesting too. The psychic impact of Sean Green just being <laughs> really good when I was like that age, like that in that adolescent age and the Mondesi trade being a huge deal at the time mm-hmm. uh, when I was like sort of switching on in that into transactions and trades and drafts and all that stuff as a fan. So he has an outsized presence in my psyche, but Julio Franco's name, I still hear 
coming up in broadcasts in languages I don't understand. Like sometimes you'll put on a Korean <laughs> game uh-huh. and you'll hear Julio Franco's name and you'll see him and he's still in incredible shape. And then I was watching a Dominican Winter League game the other day. They were having a discussion about him in the booth. And so he's just one of these global baseball presences who I think has, you know, if you if you want to have like, um, there's like, there's big time cultural impact there on, on the game itself that I think merits consideration at least. But but yeah, this was a ridiculous class. And Dale Murphy's got a lot of support as well. Yeah, there's just so many so many guys here. I mean, we haven't even mentioned Jack Morris. And, you know, he right. was getting 67% there. I wouldn't have voted for him. I'm, you know, I'm, I've spent a lot of time arguing against Jack Morris. But, you know, he did have his constituency and uh, nearly got there via the writers and then did get there via the uh, Modern Baseball Committee. Yeah, and Lee Smith as well. I wonder, as I think the way we think about relief pitching is sort of shifting again here lately. So I wonder if if that would reframe a discussion on him at some point too. So yeah, so then how did this, so if we slice all 10 of these guys off of the class, then the, the, the big names who carry over are Larry Walker, Edgar Martinez, Rafael Palmero, Sosa, Lofton, perhaps Murphy. Okay, so the 2014 ballot introduces Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and Frank Thomas, all of whom got in on the first try. Obviously, they're, they're guys that I would, would, would vote for as well. And now we get to, uh, get to go a little deeper here. Mike Messina, another first ballot guy, or another guy in his first year on this, who I was uh, in favor of, of Jaws. Uh, he, he was above the Jaws standard. So sure, I'm on board with that. So that so already we're to four here. Now I've got room for Larry Walker and Edgar Martinez, which takes us to six. And I can get around to to Sammy Sosa because again I'm going I'm going you know by the by the impact that he had on the game and you know agnostic of of the PED allegations. And then Lee Smith, I was I, I think I was I was in favor of Lee Smith more than I was against Lee Smith but didn't always have room to include him on my virtual ballots and, and kind of went both ways, but I was ultimately pretty glad he got in. So let's just say we've got Lee Smith there. So that gives me six, that, that gives me eight from that ballot. Um, that leaves Jack Morris, who was in his final year then off, uh, Jeff Kent, who was in his first year then off, uh, and Fred McGriff, who was in his fifth year uh, off. So I think that's that's an that's an eight person ballot. I think I'm, I'm pretty content with that as things go here. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd. I'd argue with this one. Again, crime dog Fred McGriff looms large, as does Nomo, and the Palmero situation is complex. Moises Alou is, I think, an interesting case as well, just because, again, of some of the moments there, and he's continued to have a career in baseball, like globally. So that's interesting as well. But, but yeah, where, so where, did, where, where did he end up going? He, I think he was after? he was a GM at some point in winter ball, and he's still around the Padres and is and is just sort of like advising there. I think he's on their backfields pretty frequently. Uh huh. But yeah, and like is one of the many Alus. Sure, <laughs> there seems to be a, an unlimited supply. All right, so eight guys get in: Maddox, Glavin, in. Big Hurt, Lee Smith, Edgar, Mike Musina, Larry Walker, Sammy Sosa. And then who are, is there anybody else down ballot who you think would have a chance of of getting it eventually? 
not really. I mean, if you're looking at Jaws, everybody else is about 10. I mean, like Palmero is the exception. He would have, you know, he would have been of the standard. But but again, I have my, you know, if, I, if sure. I'm sticking to my rule here, uh, I'm sticking to my rule. Okay. You know, the, the the relievers didn't last long enough. The, you know, the guys like Kenny Rogers had really interesting careers, but, you know, below the threshold of where I'd really consider them. So the 2015 ballot, you've got another three slam dunk first ballot guys uh, in Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, and John Smoltz. Uh, since since the uh, election of Burt Blylevin in 2011, he was the first pitcher with fewer than 300 wins to get in since 1991. By our methodology here, we would have been we would have had uh, uh, both Kurt Schilling and Mike Messina beating Smoltz and Pedro to that distinction as being the second and third. But either way. Smooth sailing for the, for these two guys as, as they as they they got ninety one percent for Pedro eighty two eighty almost eighty three percent for Smoltz, uh, so they sailed in and they would have obviously been on my ballot here, and the other the other interesting first year guy one who who is all likelihood going to end up on my ballot now uh, is Gary Sheffield whose defensive stats are some of the worst ever but are such outliers that I think they can you know, charitably be regarded with suspicion, especially if you consider the fact that, you know, he, he might have been he he might have been statistically more valuable had his teams chosen to DH him. So I think that there's there's something to be to be said for that. Uh, the other interesting guy, or a couple two other interesting guys on this ballot. I'm not sure I'm ready to put them in the Hall of Fame, but I do think that that they're worthy of mention here. Nomar Gashiapara, who had uh, a peak, a seven year peak uh, that was about the equivalent for the average Hall of Fame shortstop, but who unfortunately had a short career. Uh, and then Carlos Delgado, who just got squeezed and, and uh, uh, ended up with 3.8%. A uh, lot of home runs, didn't do very much else uh, on the on the diamond particularly well, but was a really fascinating character who I just have great respect for the way he handled things. He you know was just a conscientious guy. When it came to speaking out about the off-field issues, like not standing for for God bless America, or speaking out against the the, the bombing in in uh, uh, Vieques, Puerto Rico, uh, things like that. So I always liked him a lot, and I, I I would I'm not saying I'd put him in the Hall of Fame, but if I had a ballot and and I had space, I would definitely throw him throw him a a a, a vote to make sure he didn't get shut out. Yeah, I think both Delgado and Garcia Parra have interesting, like cultural tip in arguments for both of them. I'm curious as I look at some of the down ballot guys who include Tom Gordon, Aaron Boone, Darren Erstad, Cliff Floyd, Tony Clark, uh, Jermaine Dye. Brian Giles has an abnormally large jaws compared to the others yeah. who were who were very much buried here. What What is it about Giles' career that, that drove that? Well, he was, I mean, he was a high on base guy and, uh, that was the, that was the main thing was he was a high on base guy and I'm trying to remember I th- you know one one thirty seven OPS plus I mean that's that's a that's a guy who can freaking hit uh, four hundred career on base percentage five hundred two slugging percentage um, and he was you know did a lot of that in 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 parks that were that were not so pitcher friendly he got a late start to his career got traded a few times and uh, ended up having a short career because of injuries uh, and didn't get to two thousand hits. A little bit short on the the right field peak score, um, so he never really had a chance. But he's a guy who I think if you know you tra- if you moved him back twenty years, uh, he probably would have stuck around the ballot for a little while at least and and gotten some conversation. Good player, uh, 
some dark stuff off the field, unfortunately, uh, uh, that kind of came about in the interim of between when he retired and, and or, or at the tail end of his career. And by the time he reached the ballot was, I think, made it a little bit more unsettling to consider him, though. OK, so if we're going back to the 2015 ballot here, see, where were we? We're, so I've got I've got four guys here. Yeah. So, OK, so if I'm picking who's going in here, it's it's Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, John Smoltz, and I'm taking Gary Sheffield as well. OK, which brings us to. 2016. Oh, we get we get Ken Griffey Jr. here. Yeah. So at this point, it is changing because the whole logjam was was all up at the very front of the exercise. The shape of the classes, who gets in in a given year, has has changed. Although I suppose that like, yeah, even in the last couple of years, there are some guys who have been squeezed off because so many of this first year with Bonds, Clemens, etc., just cannot get pushed through. Yeah, you know, there there are there are guys, there are quote unquote hall of very good guys that in years past would have stuck around the ballot, you know, for a few years, but in the in the years past would have would have uh stuck around the ballot for a few years and get, you know, maybe get gotten a little bit of traction but not a ton of it and you know, maybe at some point, you know, somebody here or there might gather critical mass, but not everybody. Let me just set up the spreadsheet here so so that we have See, it's I'm so thank you for doing it this way because it is so intuitive to you who needs to who you've already pushed in and who, yeah, uh, yeah, like slides where and noting who is an interesting case that got pushed off in this year almost immediately. Yes. Okay, so as we come to t- 2016 here, we've got Ken Griffey Jr. and Trevor Hoffman as, as the top first year candidates with Billy Wagner and Jim Edmonds uh, also in that class now. Edmonds is a guy who doesn't do great in Jaws. His defensive metrics were not as, I think, not quite at the level of his uh, uh, reputation, the highlight films. It's not quite the Vizquel problem because we're talking about a guy who was an excellent hitter, had a bit of a short career, fell just short of 2,000 hits, 1,949. He's a guy, though, that I, mean, I love watching Jim Edmonds. He was just such a gamer and such a, you know, so, so good on both sides of the ball. Always a little a little skeptical about you know about the defense evaluations there. I wonder what Statcast would have said about him, but just the way that that guy put his body out there, you know, I couldn't have found room for him on my on my on my virtual ballot at the time, given you know that all the all the players that we've mentioned that 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 were actually lingering on that ballot. But I would have probably thrown him a vote at that point. And I also might have at least considered for a little bit longer Jason Kendall. He's below on Jaws, but you know, he's you know, and and really probably not close enough to justify a vote. But when I, I remember when I did the profile for him, this is when I was at SI.com, you know, people took a look and they were like, wow, didn't realize Jason Kendall was that good. Um, but he had some years there where he was uh, you know, was a was a really good player. Unfortunately a lot of that was, you know, wasted on the Pirates. Uh, but we're talking about a catcher who got almost 2,200 hits, um, even if those, you know, only 75 of those were home runs. He was uh, uh, he was an excellent player who, you know, with a little bit more luck, uh, maybe has a career that at least keeps him in the conversation for a while. Yeah, the college pitching on those Pirates teams just didn't quite get there, Chris Benson, at all. But yeah, it's interesting that there are a bunch of the big-time closers from this century on the ballot in this specific year. You mentioned Hoffman, Wagner, some of the carryovers from previous years in like our virtual reality at this point probably are still Jeff Kent, Fred McGriff, 
Nomar, Carlos Delgado at this point are probably still hanging around. And as we've we've said, like maybe the discussion around them starts to shift when they can be more at a focal point of it. And Kendall's an interesting case uh, for that as well. And yeah, I certainly remember him turn of the century, like being maybe the best catcher in baseball and just loving that there was like a fast catcher at all. Right. Also on the, the ballot further down in this year was Randy Wynn, who is one of those, and he and Mark Redzelenic both are one of those, like really, I, it's kind of surprised that he got on a Hall of Fame ballot, but Wynn is interesting for having been traded for Lou Pinella. Right. Which was just, you know, I don't think we'll ever see a thing like that again. Have we since then seen anything remotely like that? Didn't wasn't there something in when John was it John Farrell? I can't recall now. But Randy Wynn was a good player. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, um, Ozzie Guillen. When Ozzie Guillen wanted to leave Chicago for the Marlins, I think they had to give some kind of compensation. I forget exactly what it was. It was it was not Randy Wynn or somebody of his caliber. But that was a a, a trade, trade uh, in, involving a manager. John uh, Farrell was traded by the Toronto Blue Jays to the Boston Red Sox for Micah Velez in like 2012-ish. Okay. Where Mike right. Mike Avila's was was also pretty good for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm trying to see who Ozzy was traded for because he was for sure traded. <laughs> September 29th, 2011, traded by the Chicago White Sox with Ricardo Andres to the Florida Marlins in exchange for Jan Marinez and Osvaldo Martinez. Huh, wow. Well, Jan Marinez is still, is still pitching. He's in the Dominican Winter League right now. He was like a no-command fastball changeup guy, so he is still around. And then Osvaldo Martinez, there have been a couple of, and so I'm not sure which one this specifically is. And I'm not going to go look okay. <laughs> for the purposes of this right. podcast. So let, let's – do I need to recap the who I'm carrying from this uh, ballot here? I'll do it. You're, we're carrying Griffey, Hoffman, Billy Wagner, who you've pushed in, which I agree yeah. with, and Jim, Jim Edmonds. Yeah. Leaving, again, like Nomar, Jeff Kent, Fred McGriff – Kendall, these are the guys who are kind of still hanging around the ballot at this point, probably, if we're yeah, I think, voting I think strategically. Maybe, yeah, and uh, Delgado, I think, probably still lingering, too, maybe. Okay, so 2017 here. And Jay is just macheting names off of a spreadsheet right now because of all the guys who should have probably been elected at this point who are just occupying spots on the ballot several years on. And for sure, we're replacing them with guys who we would have carried who did not get sufficient vote, Nomar, Jason Kendall, Carlos Delgado. But it really is incredible to see. Is there a long-term impact, Jay, of guys who maybe aren't going to get out on the ballot at all who would? It's, it's, it's a distinguished honor, in my opinion, to be on the ballot at all. There are probably some guys who, who won't be able to receive that now that we've been slow to clear the bottleneck. Yeah, I, I I do wonder if if there's a if there's a few guys like like that here and there. I think it's more that it's it's more that the guys that normally would get less than five percent, but at, at not get shut out, have been getting sh- you know were shut out in this period, you know, which is got to be a bit of a kick in the groin ego wise. And the guys who you know maybe did get five percent or close to five percent. You know, probably are guys that would have gotten double digits and stuck around for a while. You know, maybe they would have been the Jeff Kents of 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 the ballot. You know, you're just like, yeah, he's he's still on the ballot. He's you know, he's got his constituency. He's not he's not getting anywhere. 
but he's going to spend the full run of his candidacy on this ballot. And that's, again, that's a, that's a distinction that's, not, you know, worth something, particularly, you know, when you start to think about what, how the, you know, how the committees uh, uh, choose their guys here. All right. So as we move on into this year, some of the first year ballot guys are Pud Rodriguez, Vlad Guerrero, Manny Ramirez, and you mentioned Jorge Posada, who I assume you think, yeah, it seems as though he got short shrift here. Yeah, Posada only got 3.8%. Now, the defensive metrics on Jorge Posada were cheater-esque, unfortunately. You know, his he was, you know, we're talking about a guy who was a latecomer to catching. It was, a, you know, converted from second base. Um, his receiving skills were never his forte. And even his game calling was, you know, something, I mean, there's one, there's a reason that, 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 you know, he had to stick around behind Joe Girardi for so long, you know, early in his career. So he had to, uh, kind of, uh, you know, a, a short prime, uh, in that regard, but man, could that guy, I mean, a switch hitting catcher with power and, and patience, or yeah. talk about a guy who hit 273, 374, 474 for his career out of a catcher, 121 OPS. That guy could bop. And I, you know, I, I probably, I probably would have thrown him a vote uh, if, if there'd been room at that time. There was not, you know, because uh, again, there's just this carryover on the ballot that was just brutal. But the 2017 ballot, you know, was notable because Tim Raines and Jeff Bagwell, who had been lingering, got in uh, by this version that we're doing things. They're long gone. But what that caused those guys lingering was that Vlad Guerrero did not make it into the hall on the first ballot. He got 71.7%, which is, you know, close but no cigar. You know, in this context, he's a little sh- he's a little short on jaws. His defensive metrics aren't great. But man, you got to watch, you know, watching Vlad Guerrero play ball. You're like, of course, this guy's a Hall of Famer. You know, <laughs> tell your statistics to shut up, Jaffe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Pudge for sure. I agree on Vlad. It's interesting to see some of the guys down ballot who are approaching as you've pulled down like Fred McGriff and and Nomar and Delgado, that some of the guys who are approaching them in terms of Jaws are Mike Cameron and J.D. Drew in this class. Yeah, J.D. Drew, yeah, J.D. Drew's numbers were were, were respectable. He's a little, a little short of... Uh, uh, true consideration, but you know that guy. His career was so short. I mean, he only he didn't even get to fifteen hundred hits because he was always hurt. But again, one twenty five OPS plus. This guy could could hit. You know, he frustrated fan bases everywhere because he was just never available. And you know, that's not not, not even uh, talking about his uh, post draft issues, which are the, I, I would imagine you're you're more familiar with even than I am here. Well, it was a time when players had a lot more leverage in the draft when you could get a major league deal. And trying to navigate that rather than just be the first pick, like, made it hard on teams at the very top. And it was sort of the first, really both the Drews were right in that, like, Eli Manning sort of, why not have some say in where I play? Uh Yeah. And Melvin Mora also on this ballot. Quick Melvin Mora story. I took a weekend trip down to Baltimore with a big group of friends. This was, I don't know, late in high school, maybe early in college. And there was like a car of guys and a car of the girls. And I drove the car full of the girls in like, you know, charming pursuit of one of them. The, the baseball game went late. It was like deep into extra innings. And my car wanted, started to want to drive home because we had to drive all the way back to the Lehigh Valley. And so my car left the game early and Melvin Moore hit a walk-off. Oh, geez. Which I didn't see. Oh, man. <laughs> so 
Foolish pursuits, young people. Well. <laughs> Pursue Melvin Mora. I'll do anything for love, but I won't miss a Melvin Mora walk-off homer. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so Pudge <sighs> and Vlad you have pushed in. Yeah. What what are your thoughts on on Manny? I've noticed that you haven't you haven't highlighted his name in the spreadsheet. Yeah, I again, you know, the two failed tests, you know, sticking to my rule, I I'm okay. uh, uh I I I'm I'm not voting for, but man, you know, there's a part of me that wants to and, and and I'm not going to include him on my actual ballot this year. But next year, you know, I if there's total total PED anarchy, you know, when you've got A-Rod on the fir- on his first ballot or T's uh, on his first ballot, Bonds and Clemens, the the logic, the logical gerrymandering that some people are going to have to do to vote only for Ortiz from that group is going to be hilarious. <laughs> and so I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what happens. And I and I, I kind of wonder if like you know what, screw everything, no rules, just vote all the PED guys in here and get it over with and let's see what happens you know let's maybe it's a, maybe it makes for a bad summer in Cooperstown but the world's not going to end you know and 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 I think there's probably more more sense in putting these guys in and just moving on with life than there is keeping them outside and and as, as cautionary tales or whatever and so the following year is now we're up to 2018 right yeah we're up to 2018 let me let me prep this here I think I'm going to narrate you prepping it because I think it's instructive at this point to go through okay, and see sure. who you're checking off. On the actual ballot at this point, there is still Edgar, Hoffman, Mike Mussina, Clemens, Bonds, Schilling, Walker, Billy Wagner, who Jay and I both believe should be in, Sheffield, and I think that's all of the people who, but I mean, that that's all, quote unquote, <laughs> of the people who are on the ballot as of 2018 still, who you believe should yeah, I'm about to Yeah, I'm about to delete 11 rows here. Yeah. And so so is, so is the one you didn't name, but that's like 11 guys that I would have put in by, by the 2018 ballot here. So what we have here, first the first year candidates on this one, uh, Chipper Jones, uh, Jim Tomey, and Omar Vizquel. Uh, also, Scott Rowland and Andrew Jones. Um, so this is this is a really strong uh, first year class here. Chipper and Tommy both went in with ease on that ballot. I obviously would have had them. I'm a very big Scott Rowland proponent. You know, I'd love to have seen him get in. He got ten percent, ten point two percent, and Andrew Jones got seven point three percent. And I know there's Andrew's maybe a little bit more of a polarizing candidate, not only because of his short career, but because of how much of his near standard jaws score and above above standard peak score depend upon his defensive metrics which I think he's the most valuable center fielder all time defensively according to the combination of total zone and defensive runs saved well beyond the number 2 guy uh, some schlub named Mays um, you know a lot of people don't buy that but uh, that's 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 what the numbers say and the thing I that I always come back to when I'm trying to explain how Andrew Jones could have such good defensive numbers and there's there are counter arguments there but you know neither Greg Maddox nor Tom Glavin was a strikeout was a big strikeout guy they both you know accumulated a ton of strikeouts 3,000 strikeouts or whatever but they were not you know power pitchers who, who struck guys out and the balls that they put into play 
you know, somebody needed to make those plays behind them. Uh, and Andrew Jones was the one who was there. Um, you know, he was the constant and, you know, the, the, like his ability to play shallow and cut off singles and to run down balls deep, you know, was what showed up in, 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 in their ERAs and, and allowed them to be regarded as, as the aces that, that they were. Yeah. I agree with you on Andrew Jones. And again, this is one of those where sitting here as someone who is looking at the metrics that, you know, you've derived and just allowing my biases to sort of run wild on a podcast. I to- I watched a ton of Andrew Jones playing center field growing up because they were the Braves were on national TV all the time. His son is a 2022 from high school kid from Georgia, Drew Jones. Oh, really? And he's fantastic. I got oh, a chance wow. to, I've seen him play a little bit. First saw him take BP in January. This was like the dream series that they hold in Tempe. MLB puts it on in Tempe every year. It's for uh, like black and kids from underprivileged communities. They foot the bill for them to come and stay at a hotel, receive instruction from some of the guys who have been on the ballot that we've glossed over. Uh, You know, Tom Gordon and... Uh, Junior Spivey, Lou Collier, Latroy Hawkins, a couple of the times at least. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a good event. And Drew Jones was there and had a crazy BP for someone who's like gangly, hundred and fifty five pounds at like six three. He had a pretty crazy BP wow. for an underclassman at that event. So really excited for that too. From this group, Chipper is in. You're pushing in Tommy. Scott Rowland, Johan Santana, and Andrew Jones. Yeah, let's let's talk about Santana here because he's he went one and done with two point four percent. We're talking about a a two time uh, Cy Young winner who had an injury shortened career. Just played uh, twelve seasons, but uh, some of those seasons were incomplete. Uh, also, kind of slow start to his career because he was uh, a Rule Five pick and traded early on and kept in the kept in the bullpen. We all remember the the free Johan Santana movement. You know, his first two seasons, he's got uh, uh, 45 appearances, but just nine starts and three wins and uh, probably a a negative, well, I guess slightly positive war, 0.5 total for those two years. Um, Then he missed uh, a full year uh, due to his uh, capsule injury in 2011 and had an incomplete uh, 2012 season after that no-hitter and, you know, made made comeback attempts for a few years after that. But we're talking about a guy who won two Cy Young Awards, probably should have won a third in 2005, the year that Bartolo got it. There are no three-time Cy Young winners outside the hall besides Roger Clemens with his PED issues. I think you look at what Santana did there, you know, the three ERA titles, the three strikeout titles, the three Cy Youngs, you're like, man, you know, this is this is a Sandy Koufax type of exception here. You know, minus you don't you don't obviously you don't have the the, the postseason glory to go with it, but right. the short career, brightly burning pitcher is, is is kind of an archetype that I think we should probably be more forgiving of. You know, with Hall of Fame voting, uh, I think even now I, I wish we could get a do over on on him because he's a lot better. I would take him, you know, in the Hall of Fame in a heartbeat over uh, the guys who are currently on this year's ballot: Andy Pettit, Tim Hudson, Mark Burley. You know, no disrespect to those guys. They're very good pitchers, but they're not guys who's, who I'm going to check the box next to their name. None of them ever came close to winning a Cy Young, whereas Johan, you know, should have won three. And if he'd have been healthy, who knows what he could have done. If you had to guess some of the guys who, to this point, would have been carried over, 
if we'd start lining up, let's say, Nomar with Roland and Andrew Jones and Jim Tomey, do you think that – just your gut feel for the rest of the electorate, do you think that he, he's a guy who would have gotten pushed in eventually? Santana? Johan, I suppose it applies as well. But I'm speaking more to some of the oh, guys who the guys, would, the guys like Delgado and, and Garcia Parra and Nomar, and, and yeah, yeah. I think maybe. Well, I think if you look at the way that that I mean, Fred McGriff didn't get a lot of traction. Maybe he does better in this process. Yeah, I think it's. I think you look at you know Delgado and and Fred McGriff are somewhat comparable. They're you know the guys who guys who hit you know 400 and you know, almost almost 500 home runs, but not quite 500 home runs. But McGriff had the longer career. You know, had the had the run with the Braves. Does, I guess they're about even on the Hall of Fame monitor, which is which is the more traditional stat stuff. You know, it, I, my impulse would 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 have been to say that McGriff would have been favored there, but I think they both. I, I don't know that, that they would have gotten the critical mass to get in, and I don't know that you know, especially if we're talking about a paradigm here that is even jazzier than than we've actually got. But I do think that those guys would have been lingering on the ballot for for a while here. So as you set up 2019, I'll say that some of the other higher Jaws guys who don't make the cut from this group include Carlos Ambrano is very high. He's higher than either Mike Cameron or J.D. Drew were in terms of Jaws, which is pretty interesting. I He did pitch for a sneaky long time. And then a guy who pitched for an overtly long time is Jamie Moyer, who's mm-hmm. also up there in Jaws from you know accumulating two decades worth of statistics, I assume. And Johnny Damon up there as well. Yeah, Damon, you know, Damon's a guy who, you know, almost made a run at 3,000 hits. And I think, you know, had he gotten to 3,000 hits, he would have been an automatic. I, you know, I think he doesn't do well in Jaws. His defensive metrics weren't good. He was, uh, you know, modest 104 OPS plus. But, you know, when you've got that speed power combination in center field, you know, talking about a guy at 235 homers, 408 steals over, uh, you know, and almost 3,000 hits, there's, you know, there's some real appeal there. For a candidate, but then, you know, you think about what we've already done in this exercise. We've, you know, we've voted in Kenny Lofton, we voted in Jim Edmonds. The standard is a little bit higher now in that in this alternate timeline, and maybe Johnny Damon doesn't quite look, you know, as as I mean, he doesn't look that strong now. Maybe he looks even, you know, less less of a less of a thing in this alternate reality, but you know, he might, he might be a guy that would have carried over. So let's, let's start carrying him over here. So as we move on to 2019, again, so many of these guys, Edgar Martinez, Mike Mussina, Kurt Schilling, Clemens, Bonds, Walker, McGriff, who we've discussed is maybe in the mix more so than he would have been when you start framing him in the way that we have through the last several years, Wagner in, According to us, Sheffield as well. Sosa is gone at this point. No, there he is. Yeah, and Jones. So again, it's like something like a dozen guys. Yeah. Okay. So in actuality, here the first year candidates on this ballot that that, that uh, came along: Mariano Rivera, obviously. Um, everybody voted for him. <laughs> um, Roy, Hall- Roy Halladay, which you know, I'm surprised Halladay's support was as strong as it was, but I do think that. You know the 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 proximity of the tragedy may have uh, influenced that. I you know I guess I, I I'd much rather see the president. You know, obviously we're hoping hopefully we're talking about a live candidate, but you know just gets past the two hundred win line and has two two Cy Youngs. I'm, I'm you know I'm glad that guy's getting in because we're just not going to see many guys even that good. 
so he was you know he was he's an easy choice i think for a lot but the 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 one you know one of the new guys here that i think is is very interesting and that i'm you know a big proponent of now is todd helton uh whose whose jaws is right around the standard here and you know this is after you let the air out of his 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 stats in colorado yeah he had a you know the second half of his career wasn't wasn't remarkable he had a back injury and he had you know a big contract that he struggled to live up to but overall he's right there and now that we've got the Larry Walker precedent uh, he's actually gaining some traction he only got 16 and a half percent in his first year and now he's uh, up to I think it was 29 uh, percent this this past year and that starts to be that starts to be somebody who you know you, you take seriously because they start gathering a little bit of a critical mass around them and and, and more you know more people keep adding them and and uh, that's really what, what you know what you're looking for here. But uh, I would have you know I would have had him elected here. The guy who I think would have stuck around here, in addition to you know Andy Pettit, who who did who is sticking around uh, with about ten percent, is Lance Berkman. Yeah. Um, I, Berkman's a little low for me, but his hitting you know was unmistakably uh, really strong. One forty four OPS plus uh, for his career. Only got nineteen hundred and five hits. So it's a short career. So it probably wouldn't have satisfied everybody, but I do think he's a guy who would have stuck around rather than getting one point two percent of the vote. And I think I think you know maybe Roy Oswalt might have done that. Probably, you know, the fact that he didn't have a Cy Young though, maybe maybe that's maybe that's uh, an exaggeration. But uh, I think Bertman's a guy who who I think we would we would carry over to the next ballot here. Yeah, now that it's twenty twenty, it's um. There are fewer reper like yeah. There's nothing other than to say other than this is what they decided. I agree with you. I think Berkman is of a quality that belongs on, like with some of the other carryover guys. And I think you know Miguel Tejada and Oswalt are also in that mix. Some of the down ballot guys in this class included Rick Ankeel, who perhaps if he'd have come back yet again, which his comeback attempts have been derailed by, I think injury and then the pandemic <laughs> so yeah that would be very interesting if he were to play pro baseball after he was on the ballot at all yeah oh i wrote about that that was uh, there was you know there was something that was so fascinating about that i mean talk about the honor of getting on the ballot nobody saw rick ankiel coming you know because his he had that the hybrid career of you know pitching and and hitting and the fact that he got on the ballot at all was was really pleasant surprise that i had just had to write about and yeah it would have been cool if 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 uh you know if he were able to to complete that comeback because he had done a, a informal comeback and was a semi-professional level where he did pitch that was neat and then i guess he needed not tommy john surgery but he got the 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 revision surgery or the brace surgery or whatever they're calling that and then uh, like you said the pandemic got in the way of it so i don't know what 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 he's doing now yeah neither do i he's one of those guys who there's all these people live in either florida or arizona in the off season mm -hmm. and there are just people in arizona right now like at indoor facilities good big leaguers who are just throwing <laughs> or they're at yeah. their spring training complex like they're within arm's reach, and I'm sure that somewhere in Florida, that's that's Rick Ankiel right now, if he can't, if he's physically able to be. So yeah, so well, Jay, thanks for taking the time to come on and and walk me through this. Is is there anything that you think would put a particularly helpful bow on the conversation? What are some of the things that you notice as we? Yeah, went I think I think when you look back at that 2013 ballot and you see the ripple effect that happened. 
because nobody got in and because that was such a strong first year class, we can see that, you know, in an alternate timeline, we might have gotten a Kenny Lofton Hall of Fame, uh, Jim Edmonds Hall of Fame, Johan Santana Hall of Fame. I mean, if it would have taken a lot more than just than just that. But in an ideal world, we've got more time to consider those candidates, more time for them to gather some critical mass uh, among the voters and, and, to, and to change direction, especially, you know, with regards to Santana and thinking about starting pitching a little bit. We've got the benefit of, uh, you know, some hindsight here. I think if Johan Santana hit the ballot in 2021 or 2022, we would think about him a little bit differently, particularly when there's much less competition for those precious 10 slots. But uh, it would have been a, a different cast of characters carrying over to to this ballot, and that would have been uh, uh, that that would have been kind of fun, maybe a little bit more fun, to say the least, of of this polarizing crop that we've that we've got right now, and and one maybe a little bit more fun to to consider. Yeah, I think that the mix of players who'd be discussed on about like the ones that we've built provide like a more natural sort of discussion for where the line really is than having a bunch of guys who are being held out for, in our opinions, excessive reasons. So Jay, thanks for coming on. Listeners, thanks for joining us. And producer Dylan, thank you for editing this giant chunk of audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoyed this giant chunk of audio this week. If you'd like to give back and help us keep making more, the best way to support is to get an ad-free membership at Fangraphs.com. And they also make a great gift if you're looking for any last-minute ideas. We will be back next week. Until then, thank you for listening.